Good morning, Chapel Hill. If you do not have a Bible with you, you're going to need one this morning as we jump back into Romans chapter 8. So if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along with. And if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you do not currently have a Bible of your own, please keep that Bible. Take it with you. Dig into it. Um, Read further in the book of Romans that we're going to look at today. And when you get that Bible, and for those of you that already have Bibles or phones that have a Bible app, turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Um, Many thanks to Jamie and the other leaders and to all our students for their efforts on that mission trip um, down in Rochester. Um, They did an incredible job. They really poured themselves into the lives of these kids at Oak Terrace. And it was amazing to watch what happened. It was incredible to watch our kids. Um, They had some adversity to deal with for sure. They had some high temperatures and black asphalt to work on and um, some, some rough conditions and long days. And they just poured themselves into everything that they did. And I heard very little complaining or whining about things. They, they gave their all and it was a fantastic trip. And we saw it in the, in the results of, of kids coming to Christ and, and lives being changed, legitimately transformed during that time. It was really a great trip. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read the first 13 verses together to go back and get caught up um, because I've been away for a couple of weeks and we need to jump back in here. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right. This is where we left off before I went on vacation. Um, this chapter is rich. It is full. There's so much in here, so much perspective, so much truth, so many challenges in here. And I hope you're getting as much as I'm getting out of this study of Romans chapter 8. This morning, we're going to carry on in this beautiful chapter. So look now at verses 14 through 17. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we, might, that we may also be glorified with him. There is a word in this passage that just, just jumps off the page for me. I get really excited about it. It's not the word suffer. It's the word adoption. Uh, being the father of three adopted boys, um, I'm a little biased about this word. So I get excited when I see this word. I, I've been impatient to get to this place and talk about this word adoption. Um, we spent part of our vacation, half of our vacation, down in Oklahoma where our three boys were adopted from. This means a lot to me. There are few words that so powerfully capture what God has done for us. So this is one of those passages that I, I just couldn't wait to get to. Let me tell you how, imper- how important the word adoption is to me. Um, there, there are some things that I equate adoption to in this passage. Adoption equals some things that I see in this, passion, this passage. First of all, adoption equals hope. I see that here. Adoption equals hope. Paul's reminding us that we're moving forward from a place of slavery and fear into something new, a new place. We're being led by God through God's spirit to that new place. And what a new place it is. There's hope. We're leaving what we had. We're moving to something else. Adoption equals identity. Identity. As we move on from this place of slavery and fear, we're given a new identity. And Paul says that we are now sons and daughters of God. Can there be any more valuable title, any more valuable identity than being a son or daughter of God? So adoption equals identity. Adoption equals father. As a result of our adoption, we have a new father. He is a perfect father. He is Abba father. And Paul points out that we cry out to him as our dad. Adoption equals covenant in this passage. God made this promise to us that we as Gentiles could now be adopted into his family. It is a guarantee that he will keep his covenant as our perfect father. And even as a father who keeps his word, God seals his covenant with us by giving us his spirit to live in us as that guarantee that we are sons and daughters. Adoption equals heir. Our adoption makes us heirs of God and get this, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Heirs to the throne. Yes, to the throne. We will not just inherit the riches that Jesus inherits, but we will also reign with him for all of eternity. And finally, adoption equals bond for me. There's a very significant bond that's developing right now between us and Jesus Christ. We are sharing here in this world in his sufferings. And that's going to lead us to share with him in his glory for all of eternity. Now listen, adoption is not a theological analogy. It's not what it is. Adoption is yours and mine reality. It's our reality. It's who we are. 
It's our identity. We have been adopted into God's family. He is our father. He's not just trying to teach us about our position. He's telling us this is who we are. It's so much bigger than just a a theological position. We're being called to live as adopted sons and daughters of God. We're going to talk more about what that looks like as we study this passage together this morning. All right, let's switch gears for a few minutes and go into student mode. So get your student hats on. We're practicing up for what's coming in a couple weeks here. You guys, listen, kids, you have it so good. Everywhere we went as we traveled, and we went to Wisconsin, we went to Chicago, we went to St. Louis and down to Oklahoma, and they were all in school already. All of them. All of them, and you're not. So relax. You got it good. All right, let's examine a few elements of this passage. There are some words that we need to understand clearly, and there are some concepts that we need to make a part of our mindset as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote in verse 14. He said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul just wrote about not being led by the flesh. He talked about that in detail. We are not under the authority of a body that was born sinful. That's not where we are. We're not led by the flesh anymore. We don't live according to the flesh anymore. Let me add this to what I've said previously about the flesh, about the body. This term represents the desires and demands of our flesh. This is obviously more than just a a physical pressure or tension that comes. Our flesh is part of a bigger picture that includes what I refer to as our souls. My soul is made up of my mind, my emotions, and my will. That's part of the flesh, part of the body. Our bodies and souls are parts of us that will be replaced or fully restored when Jesus comes back. For now, we wrestle with these things. My hand does not act independently. My hand is governed by my brain, by my mind. My mind affects my flesh. My emotions affect my flesh. My will, my decision-making affects my flesh. And in this context, we can understand why God is so concerned in his word about our mind. He's very concerned about our mind. Paul has written a lot about controlling our thoughts. He sees that the battle's in our brain, and we need the mind of Christ to be developed in us. God gave us his spirit to guide us into all truth. He wants our minds. He wants to be at the center of our thoughts and our minds. Regarding our emotions, we can see that that the fruit that God's spirit grows in us is directly related to our emotions, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, all directly connected to our emotions. We're to seek the gifts that God has for us through his spirit. That's how we get control of the power that our emotions have over our flesh. Regarding our will, our decision-making abilities, Paul's already instructed us to surrender our wills to God's Spirit and to walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh. Our decisions have a direct impact on our flesh. And so we're to be led by the Spirit. That surrender is evidence that God's Spirit dwells in us. That surrender is evidence that you and I are sons and daughters of God. And using the label of 
sons was significant in Paul's letter. Um, Remember that many of those listening to Paul's letter were Jews. They were children of Abraham, ethnically. That was their heritage. I mean, with Jesus, that title was being transformed. Now Jews and Gentiles alike were considered sons and daughters of God. You and I could be adopted into our eternal family. And so Paul was redefining what it meant to be a son in God's family. It was different now. And I do not believe that Paul used the word son to exclude daughters in any way. Um, there's more than just a, a title involved here. There's a mindset. He's going he's to write about us being heirs. Firstborn sons were considered heirs or sometimes other sons, which I'm going to explain later. And beyond the blessing of being sons, there was also a responsibility involved in the role of sons. And I think Paul has tied all that in by previously referring to us as debtors. Sons and daughters are led by their father, and that's what he's getting at here. So we have blessings and responsibilities when it comes to our relationship with our father as sons and daughters. And then he continues with this in verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is one of the most inviting statements in the whole Bible. Long ago, people knew what it meant to fear God. They understood that, and there's still a need for a healthy fear of God. I'm not denying that at all. But statements like this in the Bible mark a dramatic shift that God's offering from religion to relationship in the way we relate to God. Obligation, obligation is the product of fear. We do what's right because we fear the one who made the rules. Service and surrender are the products of love. We do what's right because we are surrendered to the one who fathers us out of love. Paul points out that God did not give us a spirit of slavery. We don't follow Jesus out of fear. We don't live as obligated debtors. We talked about this a while back. We live as motivated debtors. We love because he first loved us. The age of the Mosaic law had been transformed by Jesus into the age of the spirit. And you and I live in that age. We live in the fifth act, second scene. I love the way John put that. All right, let's get back to my favorite word. If someone's sitting in church listening to the letter that Paul had just written and sent to them on horseback all those years ago, heard the word adoption read in that letter, where would their mind go? Where does your mind go? When I say adoption, what is your point of reference? Where does your head go? Um, Mine has always been my family growing up because my sister is adopted. Um, Maybe you think about me and my family. Maybe you think about one of several families in this church who have adopted. Let me share with you some possible points of reference for the members of the church in Rome. What were they thinking about? And this is pretty interesting. Um, I came across this as I was studying. First of all, from Wikipedia, the source of all things true. This is what it says about that time and a very interesting adoption that had taken place. Octavius, 
was studying and undergoing military training when Julius Caesar was killed on March 15th, 44 B.C. He rejected the advice of some army officers to take refuge with the troops in Macedonia and sailed to Italy to ascertain whether he had any potential political fortunes or security. Caesar had no living legitimate children under Roman law and so adopted Octavius, his grandnephew, making him his primary heir. After landing, Octavius learned the contents of Caesar's will, and only then did he decide to become Caesar's political heir, as well as heir to two-thirds of his estate. Upon his adoption, Octavius assumed his great-uncle's name, Gaius Julius Caesar. So Octavius was this figure that the people back then were all well aware of, and his story was a story of adoption and inheriting this massive inheritance. This is Julius Caesar we're talking about, two-thirds of his estate. And this had to have been a significant point of reference for Paul's listeners. Um, It was not a conventional adoption like we understand adoption, and there was a fortune of an inheritance involved. And then here's an excerpt from a Bible commentary written by John MacArthur, and he tries to bridge that cultural gap for us. This is what he says. For some people today, the concept of adoption carries the idea of second-class status in the family. In the Roman culture of Paul's day, however, an adopted child, especially an adopted son, sometimes had greater prestige and privilege than the natural children. According to Roman law, a father's rule over his children was absolute. If he was disappointed in his natural son's skill, character, or any other attribute, he would search diligently for a boy available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities he desired. If the boy proved himself worthy, the father would take the necessary legal steps for adoption. At the death of the father, a favored adopted son would sometimes inherit the father's title, the major part of the estate, and would be the primary progenitor of the family name. Because of its obvious great importance, the process of Roman adoption involves several carefully prescribed legal procedures. The first step totally severed the boy's legal and social relationship to his natural family. And the second step placed him permanently into his new family. In addition to that, all his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if they had never existed. For the transaction to become legally binding, it also required the presence of seven reputable witnesses who could testify, if necessary, to any challenge of the adoption after the father's death. So they understood adoption. This was their picture of it. The church in Rome had some meaningful context to put Paul's words into. This was not just a compassionate act on the part of a random person to care for the needs of a child. When you look at God, this was a deliberate act of a father to redeem and restore his creation. It's a beautiful picture here. It's a beautiful reality of what he has done for us. All right, back to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul describes us as people crying out to our Father. There's an earnest nature to what Paul's saying here, to the act of crying out to our Father. And we cry out as a child would cry out in earnest to his earthly father. 
Paul connects us as adopted children of God with the personal and intimate title of Abba, Father. Abba was an Aramaic word, and that word was translated right in the title to Father in Greek. So the Aramaic and the Greek are right there in front of you. This was a, a customary title that was used of God in prayer. When people prayed, this is the title that they would use. Jesus used this title in the garden before his crucifixion. He cried out to his father using this title. And now we use it. We use it. In God's presence, in the context of an intimate relationship, we call God Father, Dad. In the context of a child addressing his or her father, it's a privilege to be invited to use this term, isn't it? Here's a quote from another source that I use to study often. The, the Blue Letter Bible, it's a website and an app as well, it says this, This term is used by those who, through Christ, have been exalted to a specially close and intimate relationship with God and who no longer dread him as the stern judge of sinners, but revere him as their reconciled and loving father. And this conception common in the New Testament epistles shines forth with a special brightness in Romans 8, 15. On verse 16. Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The spirit in us bears joint witness that we are children of God. It's part of his role. We also bear witness to that reality as part of our role. He speaks and shines through us. We act according to our new identity. And that adoption is confirmed over and over again by the spirit and by us. The Spirit here replaces the seven witnesses that were required by Roman law to testify to an adoption. He's our witness. God himself, his Spirit is our witness. Paul refers to us again as children of God. And there's an underlying meaning here in the Greek. This description refers to us as people who are animated by the Spirit of God. Would you consider yourself to be animated by the Spirit of God? This is what it means to be children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As heirs were receiving the blessing of God's kingdom, the blessings that were promised to Abraham so long ago, no small thing, God's covenant now extends to you and me. But Paul also mentions suffering here, and it seems like a bit of a downer in the whole adoption thing. But not so. Not so. Being adopted, we are now brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. He has faithfully carried out his Father's will, and so should we. We should be faithfully carrying out our Father's will. And that will for Jesus included suffering for the sake of others. And that will for us, church, includes suffering for the sake of others. We are called to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of our Father. And in that suffering, we sympathize with our brother Jesus Christ. That's what's behind the words, suffer with him in our passage. We sympathize with Jesus Christ. 
And just as we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him to the point of inheriting the rule and riches of his kingdom as it comes to the earth with Christ's return. Church, you and I have been adopted into God's family. We are now sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be enough to encourage, enough encouragement to get you through any trial on any given day. Will we live like that's true? We're going to hear some stories today from individuals who have been adopted into God's family and have a desire to declare that today through baptism. Um, before we do that, that um, I had this charge that was laid on my heart that I want to share with you um, I feel, church, like in our culture, our faith has become far too personal and individualized. It's ours. It's our faith. It's my faith. And we've gone so far down this road, I fear, that we are just unaware of the faith of the people around us. We just don't even hardly acknowledge it at all. We don't know where people are at unless we hear from them up here on a Sunday morning. They come and share their testimony like the ones we're going to hear. We just, we don't know. Because faith is personal. Faith is individual. It's our faith. So can I challenge us with something this morning? You're an adopted son or daughter of God. I am an adopted son of God. You and I desperately need to be reminded of that on a regular basis, don't we? And you and I have been called to do that for each other. How often recently have you reminded somebody that you know, a brother or sister in this church, how often have you reminded them that they're an adopted child of God, that they are truly your brother, your sister. You know, Jesus can't be here right now to do that. He was 2,000 years ago. He was here, and he's the one who let us know that we're brothers and sisters. And instead of saying, well, you're gonna, I'll, I'll tell you that again thousands of years from now, when I come back, He put his spirit inside of each one of us, inside of you and me, to remind each other that we have one father, that we are brothers and sisters, that we're going to be perfected someday, that one day our brother's coming back and he's going to take over and things are going to be renewed and restored. And it's not always going to be like this. And Jesus asked us to be that reminder for each other. You've heard him say that. Don't leave that out of your conversations with each other. Address each other as brother, sister. Start thinking of each other as brother or sister. Remind each other, especially as we're going through hard times. Remind each other. 
that you are an adopted son, you are an adopted daughter of God. You belong fully to his family. Your ties with this world have been severed permanently. You do not belong to this world anymore. You belong to God and to all of eternity. You are significant. You are valued. You are going to inherit the riches and rule of God Almighty. Can we do that for each other, church? This goes so far beyond me being adopted by God. So far beyond you being adopted by God. We are God's family, brothers and sisters. Sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. Because my enemy keeps pulling at me. Telling me to get comfortable here. You have a hole in you. Just like an adopted kid has a hole in them. And those kids feel that hole. And you and I feel that hole. Let's remind each other that that hole has been filled by our new and perfect Father, by God Almighty. And we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ.